HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by A Dozen Cousins, soulfully seasoned, ready-to-eat beans. Learn more at adozencousins.com. This week on Meet and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, from chocolate and sugarcane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the U.S. They're using this romance and fantasy to say, dates are exotic and you should consume them. I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts, in part because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market. It's not like other foods. We have very like, personal feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Ashley Jones, Director of Retail Execution at Dirty Hands, a company that makes over 3,000 visits a month to top grocery stores across the country, ensuring that product is on shelf, priced correctly, ordered regularly, and has optimal real estate. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm great, and I am really glad you're here. Um, I feel like I don't know many other, I, I really don't know anyone like Dirty Hands that kind of has the reputation Dirty Hands has um, from a merchandising perspective. And I feel like a lot of times on this show, we talk about sort of big picture marketing strategy or, you know, selling stories or, you know, we forget a little bit that like once you're on the shelf, that's kind of like when it actually all begins. And you guys are the people making sure that we're where we're supposed to be and that we're looking good and all of that. So I'm, I'm really excited that you're here. It's such an important part of once you what happens when you get to the shelf. I think that a lot of people think that all the challenges kind of end when you leave the buyer's office and they said yes. Mm-hmm. But for so many, it's where many of the challenges start. Yep. Retail is a really hard landscape to navigate. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, one thing I didn't know, and to be clear, just everyone listening, we, we don't work with you guys. I just am talking like I'm singing your praises because I've heard so many amazing things about the company. So just so everyone knows, I'm not like conflicted in any way, <laughs> but um, I have had people that have worked with us on. So I, I don't know. I hope I wasn't conflicted in the past either, but um one of the things that I never knew until I got into this crazy world um, was that you can actually be given a go-ahead by a buyer and technically be given slots in grocery stores and never show up on them. Like, that's it, crazy to me. It happens all the time because yeah. it depends on how the retailer runs. A lot of retailers still have autonomy. You have hundreds of people working for a store making decisions from day to day. 
and they make those decisions in a ton of different ways about products they like or perceptions of something that doesn't sell because it's brand new to the market. Mm-hmm. Um, so you find a lot that your stuff may not make it exactly to every place you thought it was going to. Right. Yes, we've had that happen. Um, okay, so I want to back up a little bit. A lot of the people that come on this show, surprise, surprise, when they were kids, they loved the grocery store or they loved branded product or they loved food or they loved what food did for their family or their community or what was your, how did you land in the world of like grocery store merchandising? So when I was little, I would have never put this connection together, but, um, grocery has kind of always been in my blood. My papa was a, um, grocery store manager when I was uh-huh. a kid. There's photos of me stacking shelves with him. <laughs> Don't, we can't, I won't say where, um, uh-huh. <laughs> stacking shelves with him at like six and right. realizing that I truly just love food. And yeah. I started working in grocery in high school and never really stopped. Yep. And how'd you land at Dirty Hands? Like, was it even a thing? I mean, when, when was the company, how did, how did the company start, I guess? So the company started as a family company. Um, the Our two founders, Rory Ahern and Will Ahern, Rory is the dad and Will is his youngest son. Uh, they started out in New York City merchandising for a couple of brands that Rory had had in his past. He's worked at a bunch of different sales companies, you know, think Red Bull when Red Bull was becoming huge. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so they started this family business as Rory was leaving his last um, brand and they slowly brought in the rest of the family. Kate came on, which is their middle daughter. And then Mike, their um, young or oldest son, came into the business. And I actually met Kate. Mm-hmm. So it was probably about seven years ago that they started Dirty Hands in the Northeast in Whole Foods Market. Mm-hmm. They then expanded out into the North Atlantic. And I met Kate as they were opening up that business. And there was just something about their approach to sales, which was build a relationship, understand what's happening for your brand at the store level and do what you say you're going to do. Yeah. And if you're working in a store and you're working with salespeople every day, it is so rare to find somebody who does just that. Yeah. Say what they're going to do and come in and work hard. Yeah. Um, Kate and I became great friends and within six months I hopped into dirty hands and started as a sales rep and have not looked back. And when you started, were you like in the Whole Foods making sure that the brands that they were, you know, that they worked with were on shelf and like, is that how you started or yeah, I started right as a sales rep. So I was making store calls every day on behalf of a small portfolio and really focusing in on making sure that they were distributed, that they get reordered, that they didn't run into out of stocks, that their top sellers had the most facings on shelf. So many little things get overlooked from the mm-hmm. store perspective as they're putting things to the shelf. You know, they'll, they'll cover over tags with something because they bought too much of a slow seller and your top seller instantly falls off. Yeah, yeah. No, that's so interesting. I mean, what, you know, I, I kind of like to, I when I have people like you kind of come on, I like to talk about why brands choose to work with you in the first place, right? And then secondly, like if a brand can't afford you guys yet, what can they do, you know, while they're still growing to really try to sort of replicate and what you guys do, or at least sort of mitigate some of the mistakes and the, and the problems that can happen? Like what are the big things that happen that you guys prevent? You know, like when you said the top sellers should have the most facings, I was like, huh, I wonder if our top seller has the most facings. Like, I mean, I think so. Like how, how, what are those, what are those little like things that you make sure, you know, that you make sure happen essentially? So brands come to us for a bunch of different reasons. They could be coming to us because they're going to market and they need to make sure all of their allocations land and your products make it to the store that you're supposed to be planogrammed. That is step one of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, other times they're coming to us because they're trying to maximize on a promo calendar that they've put out for the year and they want to make sure that extra space is given to them, that they're being ordered up for. A lot of new brands, one of the biggest struggles is when you're doing some of your first promos, mm-hmm. you, the stores haven't caught up to how well you're going to sell. Yep. And because of that, they're not ordering enough to prom- to do this great promo that yep. you've invested all your dollars into. That actually happened to us um, 
at one of our bigger conventional retailers this year. It was a two week promo and we were new and we sold out and they didn't, they weren't able really to restock us for the second week. And it was a big bummer. Like yeah, it's because you, you yeah. project, but what you what you don't project is for how many hands are in there and how many little ways that your projection may fall short. Yeah. And yep. so other reasons that people come to us is because as you grow as a brand and you get more SKUs, it becomes really important that you know what your shelf looks like. Do your buyers know what your top seller is or are they just looking at the new innovation that hasn't quite caught on yet? Um, right. Education is so much a part of how you get buy-in from the store level. I once had someone tell me that a top 100 brand in our portfolio didn't sell. And it was because his fat fingers ordered 14 cases of their lowest seller and it right. took three months to sell. Right. In reality, their top seller was selling five or six cases a week. Right. Wow. So, I mean, are those some of, are those like the biggest mistakes? I mean, I do, and, and I guess my other question is like, are, is it possible to just have you guys come in to do like, we're doing a big promo. We need like tactical two week or, you know, three, two weeks sequence help or, you know, is do, do brands work with you that way? Or is it always sort of like, because you're building a relationship and because you are in the store all the time, knowing the brand and knowing how the buyer relates to the brand, et cetera, is that harder? So we don't do a lot of project work. We're really inter interested in diving deep with a partner and really helping build their relationship at retail. Mm -hmm. Because while we may have great relationships in the store, the, the store itself has to feel a relationship to the brand. And that's the gap that we're really bridging. We're helping them understand that that one time you were out of stock two years ago does not mean you're going to be out of stock for the rest of your life. Right, right. And they shouldn't hold it like against you, which I have definitely seen. <laughs> um, so, okay. And are you guys, I mean, again, like you have people in stores across the country doing this every day. Yeah. We have over a hundred people, um, in stores from small independent naturals to whole foods market nationally. Um, and we are entering into sprouts nationally. Wow. Um, and what happened during COVID? Like what, how, I've heard different things. Like you've heard that some stores are like nobody extra can come in, but then you've also heard that like teams like yours have been actually really essential for stores struggling to keep up with sort of the, you know, the mania that happened about pantry loading and toilet paper hoarding and all that. So can you, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it varied a lot. So when, when COVID first started, there was a lot of fear and a lot of people trying to figure out how safety was going to work inside of their store. So there were moments where there were stores that we weren't going to or weren't going to the frequency that we are today or were a year ago. Um, but we found that all retailers that we work with have returned to almost normal right. in terms of how many people can be in the store at a time. Um, and generally, it's just going to be around guidance for the areas. Like you'll notice Northern California has some higher restrictions than anywhere else in the country. And it's about learning. Really, it all came out of the best place of making sure that everyone's safe. And for us, that was our top priority, making sure that our team that was inter interacting with the public was safe. Right. Um, but since then, the stores still need the labor. Yeah. What you will never find at a, any any retail location is enough people to do the amount of work that is in front of them. Right. And I think that's another thing that brands underestimate. Um, I didn't know, you know, I did a bunch of, I guess, are they, they're called like packouts. Is that the right expression? Where I like was putting things on the shelf at Whole Foods when yep. we first started. Yep. And it wasn't even my product. Like I was, I was unpacking a lot of coconut water and, you know, a lot of beverage basically. And it was basically sort of what, what we did because I guess we were building that relationship with the buyers on, on the grocery store floor saying like, we're not just coming in and expecting you to sell us. We're going to be helpful, um, which I didn't know was an expectation. And I guess is that just built into the model in a lot of stores that they expect that brands or at least representative of brands will be helpful? That's how you build the relationship. 
coming in and remembering that for every minute you're going to take of their time to sell them something, to ask them to scan something, to get you a tag, to invest in buying in something, that's time out of their day. And you're not the only person walking in. There's 20, 30, 50 different vendors who may talk to a buyer on any given day. And for them, the people they trust are the ones who understand that their time is just as valuable as your time who's coming in to sell. So that makes me question, so let's say you were trying to get into a Whole Foods or a Sprouts, right? Would it be an asset for you to sort of say to the buyer right off the bat, like, if we come in, we will be working with Dirty Hands and you can expect that they'll be there? Like, is that is is does it add to the selling story at all? Stores love, they love when brands are represented because there's a couple of things they get out of that that they wouldn't have gotten before. They know that they're going to have support for the product, so it's going to be packed out. If they build a display, it's going to look nice. It's going to be fronted. There's less work that they have to do on their end if they're investing in somebody like Dirty Hands. Um, They also know that they have an open line to the brand. So while we're not directly the brand advocate, we have the email and the contact to help solve anything that comes up for them. Maybe they've got some product that's about to expire out because they ordered a big display and they want some support. They know that they're going to get in touch with somebody and that's a selling point. And I think just being able to have someone who can educate the buyer so that they know more when the customers come up. No buyer doesn't want to know about the products they're selling. And when you have a one-on-one rep that you talk to all the time, you are going to be more educated about the product. You're going to know what the top sellers are. You're going to have coupons and swag and things to be able to give customers to entice them to buy new things. Mm-hmm. It's a really big selling point for them because it's a relationship that they trust and they know that they're going to have all the tools to be successful with that product. Yeah, it's so funny. I don't think that I don't, I, it was it was a part of this business that I really undervalued. I think I, I think I understood the relationship building because I come from hospitality and brick and mortar and I kind of just believe the world, no matter how techie we get, is still very much about like human to human relationships. And I, I get that. I guess I just didn't really understand You know, it started when John Lawson came on the show and he was basically saying that they see themselves as an investor because they're giving you really precious shelf space. So they're not giving you cash and infusing your business with money, but they are giving you a billboard and they're giving you an opportunity. And then it really is the brand's responsibility to to make the most of that opportunity. And and I guess what I never really connected was like, of course the buyer on the floor wants to know what this thing is that it's like has appeared on the shelf and they wanna be able to talk about it and they wanna be able to relate to it, you know, and understand why it is moving or understand why it's not moving. Um, and you can't be everywhere, you know? I mean, I I spent, I don't know, the first six months when we were just in the New York City Whole Foods, you know, visiting every store, as did everyone on my team. It was just part of what we did. And we got to know some of our buyers. But as we got bigger, I can't go to Albany and I can't go to Cincinnati, you know. And so it, it makes sense, um, you know, to have to have that relationship and to and to make sure that the support is there. Um would you have any other advice for emerging brands that can't necessarily pay for you guys that are just starting out and they find themselves in 10 or 15 Whole Foods? Um, what should they be doing right from the get-go that some of them might not know? I think the biggest thing when you're, when you're just going into a market is take the time to really figure out what your recipe for success for your brand at retail is, make sure you're making the store visits and be consistent. Um, One of the biggest mistakes that I see from brands when they're first going and trying to build a relationship with store is they only show up when their promotion's about to drop. And Mm -hmm. then they try to sell a bunch of cases without the relationship to the buyer. Because if you don't have the sales story yet and you're new and you're emerging, what's going to get you there is your relationship. And they need to know that they can trust you. And they aren't going to trust you from one visit right at the point where you're making an ask. They're going to trust you when you've come in and you've asked their opinion and you want to know about how it's been doing in that store. And you want to hear and you want to problem solve and you want to give them, 
you know, samples and things that they can hand out to their customers, or you want to support them with a demo. Um, those things are what build the relationship and the trust that not only is it a good product, but it's going to be supported. Right. And through that support, they know that they can trust you to take care of something. If Unify sent you 20 cases that are going to code out the next day, yeah. um, yep. they know that you'll be there and they have that contact that goes a long way with getting someone who wants to order a little bit more invest in the bigger stores. So spending some time getting and understanding the market whether that's through you know, some data from the buyer or from a friend in the industry, finding out what's working for other people in some of those top stores and making your investment there. Not every store is equal. Selling into a Brookline versus selling into an Inklock in Whole Foods is completely different. Right. And making sure you're putting your time in the right space. Um, and don't go too fast. I see a lot of brands who go in one region, really have success, and then go global the next minute, mm -hmm. and don't realize the amount of money and the amount of support things that they will have to put in in order to make it work. Yep. So that was definitely John's, you know, advice too. And I've seen it firsthand because I saw we had a SKU that was based um, on peanuts, and we had to change it out for cashews when we moved to our new co-packer. And if we had been, you know, if we had done like a global launch, which wouldn't have happened with us, but had we, it would have been a complete nightmare, like to, you know, to change a skew and the UPC and the, you know, consumers thinking it had peanuts, but now it had cashews and whatnot. So like a big believer in like make your like mistakes early, make them in fewer stores. There's we all have a lot of learning to do. Um, even the ones that start with D to C and you know they've figured out how to sell digitally and they have big sales online. Grocery stores are odd little worlds, I would say. Um, so that that's very good advice. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about all the other things Dirty Hands does and all the ways um, we can try to mimic it if we don't, you know, get to work with someone like you. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by A Dozen Cousins soulfully seasoned, ready-to-eat beans. A Dozen Cousins aims to bring families delicious and easy-to-prepare food inspired by traditional Creole, Caribbean, and Latin American recipes. From their Cuban black beans, made with onion, garlic, and bell peppers, to their Mexican cowboy beans made with green chilies and jalapenos, all the beans from A Dozen Cousins use easy-to-recognize ingredients like beans, vegetables, and nutrient-dense avocado oil while avoiding GMOs and artificial flavors. Learn more at a dozen cousins.com. I'm back with Ashley Jones, Director of Retail Execution at Dirty Hands. Okay. Um, so we've talked a little bit about how good merchandising can really impact sales. Um, a, a store might be, you know, a buyer, like a high level buyer might be more likely to take you on if they know that you're going to be supporting at store level. B, you know, making sure that you're in stock where you're supposed to be in stock, making sure that you're looking good. Um, all of that can help just drive sales. But maybe tell me a little bit more about how you guys think about it. Like when you're you know, if you had to convince someone to work with merchandisers, what would be sort of like your top five reasons how it makes, you know, sense for the bottom line? So the first one's always distribution, is making sure you're making it to the shelf and that you stay there. It's amazing how quickly new items can get plussed out and allocated and how quickly they can fall off a shelf. Whether that's the tag fell down, whether it was the first case didn't sell that great because it was new to the market, customers haven't quite found it yet, and they decided they wanted to you know, double up on something that moves really quickly for them. Um, the next is maximizing your promo, and that's making sure that you're ordered up for it because especially as you're emerging, 
buyers don't know how you're going to sell. So convincing them to bring in the extra cases is so important. Then it's maximizing the shelf placements that you have. And it's going to depend by retailer. There's some retailers that are much more planogram heavy than some independent naturals where you have an opportunity to really play around with what that set looks like. But adding facings, every facing you add is more cases that can be brought into the store, even if they're running a truck to shelf program. Two facings can get you eight more units in the store than in a quicker reorder than you would have seen in the past. Um, and then getting it off shelf and in front of the customers. People who are in the store all the time know the traffic and mm -hmm. the way that people flow through the store. And those opportunities for off shelf change very frequently. So what was a great opportunity for off shelf a year ago might be a little bit slower now because things have changed with covert shopping patterns. Right. And you know, right now the new hot item is filling in the salad bar at Whole Foods with cold beverages and snacks on top of it because the salad bar isn't something they're using right now. Right. But right. it just became wide open real estate for people to use. I know. Well, we've been like, hey, guys, you want to put our sauces there? Because it's meal, you know, dinner tonight, quick, easy. You know, they haven't they haven't called us back. Sadly, <laughs> Ashley. <laughs> but when was the last time you were in that store? Right. <laughs> A while ago. That is true. That is true. Um, and, then, and then there's registers and coolers and even pricing branded coolers. Not every store takes them, but if you've got a good enough relationship and the opportunity is there, the opportunity is going to be yours. Right, right. And that goes back to like, even if there's sort of a buyer kind of at the top of the pyramid who's making the big decisions, you cannot replace the relationships at store level. And it is just impossible to be in all, I mean, you're, if you're one person or if you're a team of five, or if you don't have your own merchandising team, which is a lot of people, um, it's just hard. How do you make sure that, you know, and I'm sure that everyone on your team is amazing, but how do you make sure that they are all doing everything they say they're doing? Like how, how do you keep track of the merchandisers in the store? So we uh, partnered with an app called Go Spot Check, um, mm -hmm. and every rep on every single mission on behalf of every single brand submits a Go Spot Check mission that tells you about what SKUs were out of stock that day, what they completed in store, which we call our DH Impact. Um, if there's feedback or comments, there's a, there's a section for that. And ultimately, we have roll-up reports that tell us what's happening for every brand across the country in terms of things that our team has accomplished. And then we have priority questions that we ask to understand in terms of what are we trying to accomplish for this brand and has it happened in that store, yes or no? We also have a whole brand management team who's there to look at strategy for all of our partners. So everyone's given a brand manager who looks at their business across, if it's Whole Foods, they look across Whole Foods nationally. If it's independent, it looks across our entire independent program and really sets what are we trying to do and how well have we done it? And we work back and forth with our brand partner and strategy. And what would be an example of a strategy that isn't just like get as many spots on the shelf as you can and sell as many pouches as you can? Like how would, what does strategy kind of mean in the context of this? Strategy can mean if you're launching a SKU, what percentage are we trying to get to in the first month when your reset hasn't happened? Is it in every store? What percentage of stores are we trying to go to? Strategy can also be the Percentage of stores that you're trying to get with an off-shelf, if you're a cold box item, they may tell you that you're entitled to 25%. Strategy may be saying, I actually think we can get to 45% based on where all the promo coolers are in, this re in these retailers and what our team has been able to sell for similar partners in the past. Right. Got it. Yeah, we haven't been able to get an off-shelf. Um, I guess they're just a lot harder for refrigerated brands. Is that... It's so much less real estate for refrigerated brands. Right. While you may have 15 or 20 off-shelf opportunities in a store if you're an end cap brand or a dry shelf brand, cold, if you look at a region like the Northeast where I live, or which is the North Atlantic, um, mm -hmm. they only have 45% of the stores have off-shelf space. Right. So that's that already takes you down from 40 to 21 stores where you can get an off-shelf if you have it. Um, and then they put four or five brands on at the same time. Yeah. And then I had a question also about that because like, for example, come summertime, mozzarella, tomato, and our chimichurri is like 
a great combination and super easy. And so we've sort of been like, hey, you know, those like in produce, there's like a tub that has like the cheese balls and, you know, tomatoes. And how do we get that spot? Um, And it often feels like a little challenging because we are technically in like sort of the refrigerated condiment set and that isn't the produce set and that also isn't the dairy set. So to have them all kind of talk to each other to come up with something that makes a lot of sense for the consumer, um, but is a little, you know, doesn't quite work for the, for the way that the, you know, merchandisers are kind of siloed. Um, is there, do you guys find that you're able to kind of cross functionally communicate or is that just really hard because everyone's got different margins that they're looking for and they don't really communicate that well? So it can be a challenge, but it's, it once again goes back to the relationship. You don't just say hi to the guy in grocery. You say, (laughs) you say hi to the guy who's sweeping the floor because one day he might be your grocery buyer. Um, And when it comes to trying to get space outside of grocery and other departments, it is building a relationship to those people. We've done really well with beverage around you know, watermelon season and getting into the cut fruit set, it mm-hmm. comes down to have you built a relationship with that person in produce who is going to trust that it's going to stay full because the biggest complaint right. that comes from the store level when you're smir- cross merchandising with another sub team is that, well, I don't trust that they're going to keep it full. And if it's not full, that's real estate that I could be using. Yep. Yep. And so we're going to be here. We're going to be here this many days. We're going to make sure it's taken care of those commitments and then proving that you're doing it opens the door for you to be able to do more of those, those cross merges. But it's about not just having blinders who's, you know, it's not looking at the shelf and going directly to the grocery team leader and saying, Hey, I want to do this off shelf. It's Mm -hmm. saying hi to the person packing out the shelves. It's saying hi to the person over in produce. It's talking to the cashiers because if you don't know that they're your best billboard for customer service in terms of getting people to know your brand and talking it up, you're missing an opportunity. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. Okay, so speaking of, you've seen a lot of brands probably come and go. You've seen a lot stay. Are you, do you feel like you have a pretty good picker at this point? Like when you see someone come in, are you like, they're going to do well? And if that's the case, then what are, would you say, sort of the promising signs that you can spot early on that we can all kind of try to mimic? I think the the thing for me that's always like the picker of this is going to be a great brand is when you start to walk into store and you start opening up samples and you start talking to buyers and there's just this buzz. Like there is someone who is just so excited about the product that's in front of them. It's kind of contagious. Those ones you instantly know are going to be brands that are going to hit it. I think the other piece for me is when we start talking to a partner and the first question they ask is, how can I be successful with dirty hands? You have somebody who's looking at that relationship as a partnership rather than as a line item of something I'm doing because I know I put a merchandiser in and it's going to make me more money. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think that that, again, that's kind of, that seems to be like the golden, the golden answer, you know, looking at all of these things. I mean, people who listen to this regularly, I think I say it probably every other episode, but everyone that's building your business with you has to be a partner, right? And they, and that's why it's, you've got to trust them and you've got to know that they trust you. And those relationships take time to build too, right? Like if we look at a buyer as someone who's like standing in between us and the consumer, that relationship is never going to be a good and deep and trusting one. And if we're looking at a merchandising team, as a line item, as you said, instead of a partner that's really out there sort of being, you know, the cheerleader and sort of like the, you know, the army of like positivity for your brand, then how's that going to work too? You know, um, what do you want us all to know that you don't think we know? <laughs> what I'm sure that there have been nights where you've been like complaining about, oh, <laughs> this brand thinks this, you know, like, what are, what are the things that you feel like come up a lot that, you know, aside from don't try to boil the ocean at once that, you know, (laughs) small brands, emerging brands, we might just, we might not get because it's new to us or whatever. What are some things that you wish you could tell us? 
I think the biggest thing that I always want to tell someone when they're first going into it is take it time. It's going to take time. And I know it's the hardest thing and it's, it's the thing that people want to, you know, skip ahead as quickly as possible. But the things that you will learn if you take time and you really take time to listen, we learned so much in the first 30 days of a relationship with a brand because our approach is our first 30 days is really meant to dive in and learn about your brand. I want to learn about the guy who still hasn't forgiven you for the out of stock two years ago. I want to learn about the quality issues that have popped up. I want to learn everything in front of me, what they love, what they don't love, because that's where I'm going to really build the foundation for the relationship. And it's also where I'm going to help problem solve and get rid of those preconceived notions that came up for one reason or another. Right that we never would have known about had we not just stopped and, and taken a second to listen. If you put that foundation down, you will grow faster than if you try to skip 10 steps ahead to just, I'm on the shelf and I'm, I need to have 12 displays up. Right. And you know, it's funny because we're doing um, a product, like a refresh of the brand and of the pouches and everything. And, you know, the most valuable, I would say, you know, feedback we've gotten is from the people, not the head buyers, but the buyers on the ground who were like, it doesn't say what you're supposed to do with it. And we're like, oh yeah, maybe we should put that on. Or like, you know, one guy was like, it doesn't say what it is. And I mean, this was a couple of rounds ago and we're like, oh, right. It's a sauce. Like we thought that was evident, but it's not. And it's especially not when people have, I mean, how many products are there that they're like trying to bring in, you know, you're walking through a grocery store with a basket or a cart and you're trying to get in and out and you're just flooded with, you know, all of these products and all of us that are new products, we think like everyone's going to be like, wow, what's that? You know, that's amazing. But that's not necessarily how it works. Um, so I think you also get a lot of information just about what to put on the label, you know, little things, what, what you're corrugated, it, you know, is it, it can, if it's, if it's made out of a certain cardboard and it gets wet, then it gets like really gross, you know, that's, that's really helpful information to learn. And it's hard to learn it unless you have people in the field asking those questions. It is. And I, time and time again, you can find out things about your packaging. You can find about what the customers are thinking or seeing. You can find about quality issues pretty quickly from the store level because they're talking to hundreds of people a day, right. whether it's that buyer themselves or it's the customer service who's sharing with the buyer that they've got concerns or it's the guy who's opening up that case every single week and there's always a broken one that's mm -hmm. always shattered because the outer shell is not strong enough. Right. So going back to data for a minute. So, you know, you're a brand, you're getting photos, you're getting inventory levels, you're getting whether or not you're, you know, if you're assigned 500 distribution points, you want to be at, I don't know, let's 95% of them. What's like a good, you know, you're never going to be in all of them, right? But so, yeah, you're never going to be in all of them. And it's going to depend, especially if we're talking Whole Foods in specific, it's going to depend on what level of authorization you get there's authorization as low as 60 percent if you're going globally um and there's authorization in terms of 100 percent. but in most of those cases they're probably closer to 90 um right depending on the store because you have some stores if you've been in some of these small ones they're that tiny. are the size mm -hmm. of a 7-eleven mm -hmm. yeah so you get that data and you see like okay Here's how we're looking. Here's what where we are. Here's where we're not. Here's where we're positioned. How do you then take that and say, okay, brand XYZ, here's how we're going to take this data and use it to your advantage? So it starts off with where, where are your holes? Where are the places that you need to get into? That's basic data number one. Because if you have stores that aren't selling, we yeah. want to make sure that the top stores are selling and that your top SKU is in all the right accounts. Mm -hmm. SKU mix is so important for so many brands because they have one or two that really hit and then they start to add innovation and you start to notice that as innovation comes in, your top seller gets swapped out. It's really making sure that your right mix is on the shelf for you every time. Right. Then it's looking at what stores are doing well. 
what are your top accounts? And now let's go look at why they're your top account. Is it because it's Columbus Circle? Or is it because you've got eye level placement and you've got double facings of each? And really starting to narrow down to what's working for your brand because different things work. We have partners who in different regions are planogrammed in different sets. And you start to look at each region sales over time and saying, huh, so when we're in the hummus set, we don't do well. But when I got put in grab and go, my -hmm. sales are 5x. Yeah. And this visibility into the shelf by being able to look at photos, looking at every place that you are, you're able to take a step back and say, all right, when I go meet with the buyer next, I'm going to have a conviction, right? I'm going to come with real data Mm -hmm. that isn't just my spins data looks like this. I grew five X this year, but it's really, I want to talk about how we're coming together on this brand. And I think that I need to be in grab and go. I've seen that in this three regions, our growth is way higher than in the two regions that we got planogrammed in hummus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. When we first started, they didn't really know where to put us because there's nothing quite like us. And so we were in a third produce, in a third hummus, and in a third in that refrigerated condiment area. Um, and it it didn't really, you know, we ended up, we did do the best in produce. We ended up not being in produce because, you know, it it kind of made more sense to be in the refrigerated condiments and our velocities did catch up. Um, but it, it was definitely like, I was like, put us in produce, you know, and, <laughs> and it, they didn't, but it definitely was very interesting to sort of see, you know, I'll never forget. I had a conversation with a potential investor who shall remain nameless for the rest of my life. But she said that her advice to me was to, get the product in the most foot traffic part of the store. <laughs> I was like, thank you for that incredible advice. Like, isn't obviously like what I actually, I would prefer to be in the least traffic part of the store just to add the challenge to myself to try to get people to buy it. it well, was, you could be was, the best of the worst. Yeah, but I, right. I guess. And <laughs> in that case, you know, I guess you're, it depends, right? I guess that is a good point, right? You could be sort of saying like compared to the other guys around us, we're like lapping them from a velocity perspective. Um, but then ultimately you'd be like, well, look at what we could be doing, right? If we were, it's kind of like we're, there are a couple stores that have us at just a much higher price than we should be. And again, we don't control that. And our, our kind of feedback is always like, look how well we're doing, you know, at $8.99. Imagine how well we'd be doing at $6.99. But do you think that you guys kind of, I do feel that there's a disconnect sometimes between the buyers and the brands. I mean, there is always some, there is always like a, there is always a disconnect, right? But at the end of the day, I feel like one of the ways that you guys bridge that is by you know, we're here saying, imagine how well we would do. You guys are actually saying, here's, here's the proof a little yeah. bit. It's the yeah. education piece. And I think there's, there's two ways we like to approach our relationship. One is at the store level for the person who's making those in the moment store decisions, who's going to make sure you're ordered, make sure you're on shelf, giving you the right amount of space. But there's also the piece of taking the insights of what's working. We have so many people who are watching these things happen live Mm -hmm. and are able to tell you that this placement has been so much more successful. Now let's tie that into data. Let me show you exactly the examples with the photos, with the the sales data that says this should be your approach when you go and talk to a buyer because not every buyer sees everything that happens at the store level. They're looking at sales. And sales are impacted for so many different reasons. Some of it is your brand, but also some of it is that there's a lot of people who put their hands on your brand before it makes it to the shelf. Right. Yeah. No, this is all really helpful. So let's just say that you were launching Ashley's Brownies and you had a, let's give you, should I give you a refrigerated, a frozen or a shelf stable product? Oh man. Um, if I want to make a lot of money, I'm probably going after shelf. Okay, great. Yeah. Shelf stable. We'll go shelf stable. I I like the frozen category for baking. It's actually really coming up and coming. Yeah. But 
it's I'll still shelf stable. Supply chain's hard. Okay, so you have this really nice shelf stable. I always go back to like it's you know, got high protein because it's got black beans in it and it's low sugar and it's like really good. Um, you know, how would you, before you even decide on like, are they single at the register? Are they in bars? Are they in baking? Are they in, you know, like how would you go about sort of before you decide on what the product is using what you know about merchandising to evaluate how you would launch it? Oh, that's such a good question. Because at, at a launch, I'd want a single serve to start. Because uh-huh. I want something that someone can put their hands on, they can invest a very low amount of money and can just put it in their mouth, say they love it and come back and buy another one. Long term, I'd want to get into that multi-pack because that's where you really start to drive velocity. It's a lot of work to sell that one brownie. It's going to mm-hmm. be a lot of hands. It's going to be a lot of selling to make sure that you're getting the right placement. But when you do, you're going to pick up a lot more customers. Right. Because the higher the price point, the harder it is to bring a new customer on for you. Yes, we've seen that. But it's interesting because I've never really thought about this. But for anyone, I, I get a lot of DMs from people who listen to this podcast who aren't actually, they don't have a brand or work for a brand. They just like like to think about it. Um, and I think this is actually really interesting advice. How would you tell someone before they've even decided what to make? I mean, there's probably a lot of research that you can do at the grocery store to even decide on what category you would be in. And once you're in that category, what your price point would be and what your you know differentiation would be and all of that, right? I mean- Totally, walk yeah. a set. Look at the set. What's at eye level? Because a lot of times when buyers are picking their planograms, eye level is the thing that's gonna move. It's got a, probably usually a pretty good margin and it's probably got good velocity because they're just drawing somebody into it. Um, and seeing, what are the other things in that category? What makes them special? What's missing? Mm-hmm. If you're looking at a product, don't go and remake the product that somebody else already makes. Right. Why is it going to be better? Why is it going to be different? Is it because you can do it at a third of the price? Then that's great. That's the reason you're different. But if it's the exact same product at the exact same price point, what's right. going to make you different and make the buyer want to take something that has proven history and take and put it off the shelf? Um, and then really start to look at what's in the other places that isn't just the shelf. Does this category have multiple placements? Is what brands are there? What's trending right now? What's mm-hmm. in the flyer? What are customers having their baskets? Right. I think that was one of my, when I worked in retail in the store, I was always looking at what people bought mm-hmm. because it tells you a lot about what's trending now. Yeah. And don't forget the best person the people who are stocking the shelves. Yeah. What's their favorite thing? What's new? What's exciting? Get their recommendations because they're going to be able to tell you what's working and what's not working. And for someone to stop and ask them a question about how their day is or what they think, Mm -hmm. it really does brighten their day. Yeah. All right. I haven't asked this question in a while, but you seem like the perfect person to ask. Like, what's the most fun you've had doing your job? Oh, this is, this is an easy one for me. So every year, Dirty Hands does holiday help, which is the week before Thanksgiving. Um, we go all hands on deck. Everybody from our president and founders all the way down to our admins get into store and work side by side with our teams. We are there to do nothing other than pack out eggs, pack out <laughs> heavy cream, pack out stuffing, and stand in the spice aisle and tell somebody where things are. Right. We're there to lighten the load. And I can tell you that the investment we put in time in giving back to these stores, we'll go to a store for four hours at a time and make sure that we're just extra labor. Right. We're gonna help them clean out the back rooms. We're gonna help them get the things up that are stuck in back stock that are currently gonna get your hands dirty. We're gonna get our hands dirty. (laughs) And that is literally the, the whole point behind Dirty Hands. We're here to help, we're here to support. We're here when you need us. And that turns around for a time when you come into somewhere like January where everyone has their promotions, where everyone is looking for the big ask. That's where our tickets come in because Mm -hmm. 
we weren't there for ourselves that week. We weren't there for ourselves through December. We were there to help the store and be their partner. And when we need them to turn around and be our partner, they're there to help. Yeah. That's awesome. This has been so much fun. Every time I interview someone like you, I'm like, we got to, we got to add them. We got to work with them. I'm thinking like, what, you know, when are you guys going into Sprouts? Uh, Our first day in Sprouts is February 1st. Okay. That is good to know. Um, All right, Ashley, thank you so much. Um, What a fun conversation. I love, I love getting back. I, I love getting back down to like, the actual hands-on product. Sometimes the conversation just gets so sort of like big picture and that's important, but this is all stuff that like, even if you can't afford to hire a a merchandising team, just to know that if you're in those 10 stores, like you just gave like 18 pieces of really good advice for a brand, you know, to, to really max out. And I can guarantee you like, if you do well in those 10 or 15 stores, you will get more stores and it will grow. It's just, it, buyers are looking for products that move and that consumers are excited about. Um, so investing this kind of like, you know, sweat equity in at an early stage, I, I mean, I've seen it pay off so many times. Um, so, Ashley, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It was really great. And I'd say the last piece of advice I have is is build your recipe. Figure out what made you successful in a market and be ready to replicate that place after place after place. You'll get more efficient at it as you do it, opening more markets and getting into new retailers. But take the time to figure out what that recipe is because that's what's going to help you scale in the long run faster. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. Amanda, thank you for being, um, engineer extraordinaire. Um, I have for all of the people that listen regularly, I have episodes booked through June. Um, really exciting people from all areas of the CPG community. Um, people who are starting, lawyers, investors, marketing people, uh, everyone, Um, and lots of really cool guests. So if you haven't subscribed, subscribe. I also got to say, I would like a few more reviews. I hear from a lot of people, but there aren't a ton of reviews. So just if I may, please write some. It does help. I don't know if anything, it just like makes me feel better. Um, But I'm sure it does something with some algorithm somewhere. Um, Anyway, I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community. Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends and please Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.